You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We look at our joyful exile. And our big question is this, how to live in a post-Christian society? It kind of stirs things up, doesn't it? Maybe we don't want to admit that this is a post-Christian society. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe we want to pull things back and reverse, reverse history a little bit. But how do we live in the society that we are given, that many parts are extremely post-Christian, and I would say even the most um, traditional parts are moving in the same direction. And I think the big picture, the big answer is going to be, we have a joyful exile. He is ours, our joyful exile. On the um, slides, I don't have this, so we'll just hold tight here for a second. But uh, one verse out of this passage, we have the passage, I've been assigned the passage of Ezra 6, 19 through 20, hmm, to the end of the chapter. And uh, this right here says, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread with joy. They kept the feast of unleavened bread with joy. Um, Joe, do we normally stand when we read the passage? Shall we all stand for the reading of God's word? Now that we've all sat down, we'll go up and down, up and down. All right, sorry. Let's move on over to the, uh, the passage, and I think I'll just turn around and read it this way. Go ahead and listen as I read. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priest and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the, they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles and uh, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Shall we pray to the God of Israel? Oh God, our Father, oh God, dear Jesus, the Son, oh Holy Spirit, we pray to you right now. Um, we ask that you would bring the printed word to life. I pray, Lord, from the pulpit and the chairs that our hearts would be stirred, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be honest with who we are and and declare who you are, and we would find a response that um, would start moving in the direction of more and more joy at this crazy message of the gospel. The fact that we don't have to earn anymore, that our efforts and our labors are those born of love because we're grateful for what has been done. Jesus, thank you for being an exile for us, but not just a grim, grumpy exile. You're a joyful exile. 
He said that you looked at the cross and you acknowledged the shame, but you did it for the joy set before you. Thank you, God, that you're a joyful God. You're a happy God. Let us let who you are sink deep into our hearts, that our our worship will be one of, of love and joy and praise and happiness and celebration and partying because you're a partying God. God, you hate sin. We all should, and we do in part despise the brokenness of this world. Angers us to see beauty broken and things that are supposed to be used to be abused. It grieves us all and it grieves your heart, but Lord, that's not the end of the story. You've done everything required to deal with the brokenness and to deal with the rebellion and bring your creation back to the way you wanted in the beginning, a paradise that parties. So Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Our joyful exile, how to live in a post-Christian society. My personal opinion that this question is one of the top things that Christians um, especially conservative Protestants or evangelicals uh, are wrestling with, especially in America. America's part of the West. Senior history class talks about, uh, or, or juniors in, in high school, uh, talk about the Western civilization and all the countries that are part of the Western expansion that happened through the Middle Ages and on into the Renaissance and the Reformation and into the modern era Countries like England, countries like Germany, countries like France, countries like the United States and Canada, um, and even part of the tradition is Australia. We're, we're a country that's part of Western civilization. And Western civilization is, is wrestling right now with its past. Things are shifting. Uh, things are coming to fruition. And Christians in this day are, are being challenged and being called to respond in a way that maybe even as, as, as recent as 15, 20 years ago, we just weren't dealing with the same kind of issues. And this is my heart, and I know it's your heart too, that our message right here in this church will be one that would give joy to the next generation. If you're a senior in high school, if you're a junior in high school, if you're in high school, or if you care about those that are in high school, I pray that this message would be for you. Is this message something that will give you motivation to live with joy? Hint, you're being called to live as a joyful exile. Christianity is not the uh, standard in our society, in governmental places, and in education places, and in, in, in all aspects of society. And that's an oversimplification because just because the Ten Commandments are on a granite plaque at a courthouse doesn't mean the judge is saved. We need more than a Christian worldview for salvation. Now, a Christian worldview makes evangelism a lot easier because when you say God, we have one thing in mind. And when we say the Bible, they take it seriously. But if we come into a society that's never tasted 
Christianity or a society that has purposefully rebelled and rejected Christianity. When we say God, we say which one? He? She? What are you talking about? When you say you need to come to church, they say, what's that? Uh, my grandparents? I don't know anybody that's... that's you know there's places in, in the United States that it's that way? I, those of you from the Northwest know that that's what it's like. Uh, the civilizations of the West are, are much further down the, the trail of post-Christian society. If we were to travel to Australia, one of my uh, favorite commenters on culture is a pastor in Melbourne, Australia named Mark Sayers. And he is a solid theological pastor in our tribe. And he deals with complete disconnect from any familiarity with Christianity. There's not a reference point in Melbourne, Australia, like we have in Hastings, Nebraska. And guess what? I think we all know that um, we're headed in that direction. Be nice if we could pull things back, but know this, there is something of encouragement. Christians thrive on the fringes of society. It's only been an anomaly for the last uh, two to three centuries that we've kind of been in the center of society where we did have references to Scripture. We did have uh, passages posted in governmental places. And you know what? That's a scary thing, too. Because suddenly Christianity can be uh, defined as Christian dumb. That's a different whole thing together. That's the thought that if we have a Christian worldview or believe that there is a God and Scripture should be obeyed, and I'm a good person, and I pay my taxes, and I'm not an idiot to my neighbor, well, we're all good people. We're in a Christian nation. We're all just good. You know, some parts of the country say if you're born here, you're a Christian. Literally, I mean, that's, that's probably not said, wouldn't actually verbalize it, but feel it strong. So strong that uh, it crushes real evangelism. Because you think, yeah, we're all pretty good. What's the problem? Good people go to hell because there's no such thing. Those that say we're righteous, you know, the Pharisees said we're righteous. And they're the ones with the biggest problem. But the one standing over here saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the one that goes down justified. And it's very easy for cultural pride to make us like that Pharisee that says, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like those third world countries. It's a weird blend that's very scary when we start nailing uh, verses to our institutions. I think it's good, but it's also dangerous. So young people, you have the opportunity to step back into old-time religion. The old scriptural gospel where you can learn how to operate with joy as an exile. And mostly, uh, usually I, uh, I start rambling on like this and, uh, and I don't get to application. I love expositional preaching, but sometimes I geek out on the Greek or I get bogged down into all the details and don't get to, so now what do we do about it? So I'm starting number one, with what do we do about it? Number one, as we think about how to live in a post-Christian society, let's click on to the first point. There's three things that joyful exiles do. And if you're not convinced 
that, uh, that we are moving into the realm of exile. But listen to this uh, little passage from an article written by uh, Tim Keller. Pray for Tim Keller. He has pancreatic cancer stage four. He's the pastor of the, was the pastor of the uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City for years and years and uh, lived in a, as an exile in that crazy city. Um, he's writing a four-part series right now in his Gospel and Life journal that's at a scholarly level but easy to read. It's like a book. And I'm just wondering if maybe they're talking behind the scenes and saying, Tim, you've written a lot of books, but we don't know how much time you have left. So why don't you write a book-level series of articles? And the articles, the, the, the series is called this. Um, I wrote it down somewhere. Yes, The Decline and Renewal of the American Church. You can t Google that. The Decline and Renewal of the American Church. And Keller says this, conservative Protestants lack a model for relating to secular culture. Think about that. We lack a model for how to relate to secular culture, especially in America. Evangelicalism has been a prominent part of Christendom culture, one in which Christian beliefs and practices were dominant and assumed. True? Christian beliefs and practices were dominant and assumed. Now that this has changed evangelical struggle to find a public theology. How do we relate? What's our theology for mission, for relating, for reaching? One that defines how they relate to the larger society. Many fundamentalists simply want to reestablish Christendom through government action. Others simply want to withdraw from culture altogether and just build up the church inside of these four walls. It is this issue that divides evangelicals and other conservative Protestants from fundamentalists today more than ever. What Tim Keller is saying is this issue of how do we relate to culture and society as it is, is the challenge of our day. So what do we do? Number one, three things joyful exiles do. First, a joyful exile, uh, exile will serve the church joyfully. Matthew 16, familiar verses, I will build up my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Young people, pour yourself into the local body. You need a community. You need a local band of brothers and sisters to get you through the next 50 years of your life. If you want meaning, if you want purpose, if you, know what, uh, if you want to know what to do, with your life and how to make decisions about college and about career and about marriage and about relationships, plug yourself into the local church. It's the place where the gates of hell does not prevail. The gates of hell are knocking at the door. So be a soldier of the cross. God poured out his grace on the Israelite nation as one special nation in the midst of all the nations. And now he pours out his special grace into the spiritual Israel, the church that is amongst all nations. Maybe God will call you to be a businessman in uh, another country. 
The spiritual Israel's there. There's a local place to serve there. Find it. Plug in. Serve it. Be blessed by it. Don't go to college without joining a church. How about that? Don't get a job in another place without joining a church. Those of you that are not who I'm talking to directly, pray that they will. I think a will and gin right now as you're raising your children, as you think of how do we prepare our kids to move forward when we start breaking down and falling apart. John Piper says, the world makes sense when you understand we're in war. The Bible tells us that our children are arrows in this battle. The next generation is the arrows. Older brothers and sisters, be the bow. Pray, pray, send them forward. Serve the church as a joyful exile. Number two, serve neighbors as a joyful exile exile. Matthew 22 says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I like it. I don't, I am taking the position of the Pharisee. Well, who's my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Well, I think we could say this. Our neighbor is not necessarily Christian, but our neighbor is somebody that we can relate to. Someone we live near may not be able to, you have neighbors you can't relate to. Ben Franklin said, uh, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> we had a little dog come into our backyard fence um, this week, and we're like, what neighbor let this dog in there? No collar, mangy. We tried to feed it, and it snapped at karma. It's like, wow, what are we going to do with this? Called the Humane Society. They don't answer the phone. Great. And got another errand to run today. Random mangy dog in the neighborhood. And so I was a great husband and kind of didn't come out and say it, but basically said, Carmen, why don't you take care of it? So she texted back and I went out. It was skinny enough. It snuck out of the fence and got away. Like, good deal, good deal. Um, how do we treat our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors who are our neighbors? Or those that are near to us and those that are different than our enemies, those that probably aren't directly coming against our faith. Uh, in an active way. Probably some overlap here, but Jesus said, love your neighbor. What's your posture as an exile in this society? It is love. It is service. Been wrestling with these two words. It is humble boldness. Does love mean you just lay down your principles? You lay down your beliefs? No, but the way that you express what's near and dear to you, heart, your heart can be done harshly or with love. And God says, love your neighbor. And here's one that just rolls off of our lips, like a, our, our third one. Uh, three things joyful exiles should do. Third, serve enemies as a joyful exile. And we all know Christians are supposed to love our enemies, right? Love our enemies, love our enemies, love our enemies. It's easy to say. Do we? Where are they? Who are they? Who are your enemies as a Christian in your life? Some, some enemies are institutional. Uh, some of the businesses and the schools that we're employed by uh, are built upon a non-Christian worldview 
and by definition are antagonistic against us. How do we operate when we've got an out-of-control, crazy boss? How do we operate when we have an out-of-control, crazy system that we're a part of as we go in there and earn a living? What do we do? Take the posture of a joyful exile. Take the posture, posture of a humble and bold servant. Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute against you. It's been a while since I prayed for the public school I work for. Darn. Fail? Should have been praying more. How do we do this? We talked about what to do. I'm going to save how to until the end. Here's one way that, that I used to do it. I've, I'm, 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 I'm getting too tired to be as radical as I feel. Some of the disciples of Jesus Christ were radicals. They were, um, I can't think of the word, but they were, they were political rebels. And I went through a real season where I was a political rebel. I was in a traditional church, and uh, we were basically like a salt shaker. We were just uh, to keep the salt inside the four walls. And I'm young and like, what are we doing this for? I want to go do something. I, wanna, I want my faith to be real. I'm investing all this time so I can learn how to sing Amazing Grace again. I sit with my grandma and grandpa in the old pews from 1920. I want to get out and do something. I want my faith to impact society. I want to get involved. I want to see a difference. I want to see that this stuff that we say is the power of God unto salvation really saves. And I'm looking around society and going like, what are the biggest problems in our society that we have? I like uh, racism's a problem, homelessness a problem, poverty's eh, kind of a problem. It, it really is now that you dig into it, but often think of foreign countries and not America. What are the problems of society? Where can I make a difference? And I bumped into the pro-life movement. I was in college and I, uh, I, uh, someone gave me a brochure and said, would you like to come down to Lincoln and go to a rally? And I looked at these brochures And I saw little babies inside of trash bags. And I'm like, what is this? I felt a nausea that changed the trajectory of my life for over a decade. I will not live in this country without responding to this with all that I have. That's what I did in college. So we went down to the rally and we uh, got involved in the, the political scene and talking uh, earlier this week, I forgot that I was part of an organization that uh, way back before we knew you guys or, or left Nebraska, I gave, a, I gave a speech down at Brickyard Park uh, for the sake of changing the laws in this country about the cause of, of life and protecting those most vulnerable. And uh, notice that there were really a lot of different groups and a lot of different approaches. And, and, and some, uh, they just focused on law, changing the laws. And, and some reached out to the ladies as, uh, as a crisis pregnancy center. And, uh, and then others uh, went to the abortion clinics and, uh, and stood there. And, and even those groups were all over the spectrum. Some were, some were crazy. Of course, I wasn't. 
Some were packing heat and ready to use it. And no, I wasn't. But uh, Some were there like a mobile crisis pregnancy center with blankets and bottles and phone numbers and, and resources to find help. And some were there to preach. And that's kind of where I fell in. We would, we would call out to the ladies and the men as, as they went in. And it was a horrible scene. Can you imagine? driving down Interstate 80 one time and I uh, heard Focus on the Family talk about a rally in Wichita, Kansas, and there were hundreds of thousands of farmers and citizens and Christians of every denomination, Protestant and Catholic, that were converging on um, Wichita, Kansas, because why? Wichita, Kansas had one of the very few facilities in the world that would do abortions up until the final day before birth the final trimester, and I'm like, in the Midwest, in the heartland, out here in good old America, Wichita, Kansas, five hours away, I'm going. Called Karma, I'm going, are you coming with me? She hopped in the car and she came with me, and we went down there, and it was like stepping onto another planet. I was so afraid. Preacher's kid, break the law. And we stepped out of the car and we walked over and there was that building and there was that fence and there were those group of people that were ministering slash protesting. And I didn't know what to do or who to talk to, or where to stand or not to stand. And then here came the car, big, fancy, windows tinted luxury car and it was the abortion doctor pulling in to the, to the clinic. And... Uh, and then here came the, the boyfriends, oftentimes just almost dragging their girlfriends in. And then there were others that claimed to be Christians and took their Bibles, uh, yelling that I'm covered in the blood. I'm, 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 I'm covered in the blood. Jesus has saved me, and there's nothing I can do uh, that's sinful. That would march right on in. And to be real clear on this touchy, crazy issue, The joyful exile loves the baby and the mother. The joyful exile forgives those that have been involved in this in their life. And says, it doesn't matter what you've done or what you've been involved in. The blood of Jesus Christ forgives and restores and you can move forward with a new life in him no matter was preaching one time and there was a lady that had had an abortion and had never dealt with it emotionally. And when I got done, she came forward and, and, and confessed it. And the church just received her with joy and hugged her and said, we love you. Jesus loves you. You're forgiven. You're clean. And a smile came across her face and a new day launched in her life in our church that we had not seen before. Well, we ended up moving to Kansas. Sold, well, we didn't have anything to sell, but uh, we packed up and we moved to Kansas. I left my career and started doing handyman work and suddenly realized that being a martyr and a Christian soldier is expensive. I'm <laughs> working for minimum wage. I'm putting my ad in the paper and like, what has happened to my life? And part of our, part of our uh, ministry, which it was, was, was out of our church that we were a part of. Um, 
we decided to do a, an event that was very different than what we normally did. Normally, as we called out to them, we would, we would read from scripture and we would sing hymns and, and we would offer love and we would offer confrontation as well. And uh, um, there was a season where there was not one single week where we didn't see at least one woman come over and change her mind. Some Saturdays, five or six. I may have shared this before, but even one came after the baby was born and just drove back by and said, you guys still here? I just wanted to show you something. I gave birth to my little baby. Thank you for praying with me. And there was a little baby. And we decided that, you know what? How about one day there'll be no abortions in Wichita, Kansas? So where are we going? We all put on our Baptist suits and ties. We all prayed. I got the old-time miniature VHS camera. That's the era we were living in. I was the cameraman. And we decided to break the law, have civil disobedience, and walk into the property inside of the fence. And the security car, uh, guard came out swinging his gun and breaking all sorts of rules uh, for security guards. And uh, I thought I was going to be the great, holy, noble stand-up guy. Everybody got a, mist, uh, uh, a trespass. I got resisting arrest. And I've got this video of this police officer coming up to me, getting right in my face and said, sir, give me the camera. I said, I will not. It's on the camera. It's on the video. He says, I'm telling you again, give me the camera. I'm not going to do it. it. Happened a third time. And then everything went to static. And five police officers pushed me to the ground and put me in handcuffs. And then we took the paddy wagon downtown, and we stayed in a big holding cell for the afternoon. And then we came outside and got interviewed by the, by the uh, press, and what an experience. Karma can tell you the day that she did something similar with a little less uh, extremism. She was a little more compliant with the police officers. And then I quit doing pro-life altogether. My thought was this, I only have a few days, a few years to use my life, and I want to use my time well, and I want to be in the greatest cause, using my time in the greatest method. And I discovered that as horrific the need is, the problem is, and how urgent the need is, there is a higher calling and a better way to use your time than spending all of your time focused upon a societal cause, even as bad as the one that we've been thinking about right now. As horrible as that situation is, there's a greater call as a joyful exile. And it goes back to what do joyful exiles do? They serve the church. The church is Christ's bride, not the abortion clinic, not the, not the center of care for ladies that are pregnant. That stuff is urgent and needed and secondary. And Karma and I looked at each other and said, what are we doing because part of our uh, message and narrative at that time was the church is not active the way it should be. And so the American church is all jacked up. The problem is the American church. 
And my daddy said, you be careful when you start picking on the Lord's bride. My daddy was an old Baptist preacher and says the church has a lot of problems, but never forget the church is Christ's bride. We said, then we are going to turn our forces, such as they are, towards serving a church that ministers to people. And we went to a place to where a church that ministered to ladies where they had single ladies that had uh, their boyfriend had left them and they had a baby. And there's a little gangbanger over here that met Jesus and said, I want to dedicate my life to the Lord. And said, I'll marry the single mom with the baby and be the dad. Now that's upstream. That's That's glory. That's better. That's changing the hearts before it happens. The gospel has power to go upstream and change the hearts of man so that all of the societal ills will will be lifted and raised like many boats. I wonder what should you do? How should you use your time? Don't ever underestimate the power of the church and the power of loving your neighbors and the power of reaching out in love to your family, to your enemies. So let's look at our passage. Number two, the joyful exiles. Ezra 6.22 says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread with joy. In this passage, it talks about, you know, where we are in the story of the, the series of Ezra, where there's really Ezra and Nehemiah have three sections. And originally they were written as, as one scroll. And uh, Ezra has one section and, uh, and there's no Ezra. It's before Ezra. That's where we've been up until today. Next Sunday is, is we get to meet Ezra. And then the second section is the second half of the book of Ezra. And then Nehemiah is the third part. So we're just finishing up the first third. And they have built the temple. And they're starting to celebrate. And they're starting to keep the old festivals. And they're starting to keep the old feasts. And they're starting to reinstitute God's way of worship. And it says that they kept the feast of unleavened bread. And they kept the Passover. The wonderful thing about what's going on here is it says in our passage, on the 14th day of the month, they ret- the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. Let that soak in. The leadership started to purify itself. As we think of the story of the Old Testament, the priesthood was oftentimes corrupt, oftentimes uh, abusive to the people that they served, and they were impure. And the priests came back, and they were humble, because at this point, enough years had gone by, they knew this was not like Solomon's temple. The glory wasn't there like Solomon's temple was. They knew they didn't have the Ark and the Covenant. They knew they didn't have the Shekinah glory. They knew. What do we do right now when we know things aren't as good as they could be? The well church, what do we do in the space in between? They knew that it wasn't as good as Solomon's temple and it wasn't the second coming of, or it wasn't the coming of the Messiah. What did they do anyway? In this already not yet tension that they were in, they says, nevertheless, we will purify ourselves. 
Church, purify yourselves. Leaders, purify yourselves. Husbands, wives, purify yourselves. Walk in purity. They purified themselves. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. Now, now what is the Passover? The Passover and the, the unleavened bread feasts are, are actually like, um, uh, the Passover is a meal. And the three elements of the meal are bitter herbs, the uh, unleavened bread, and then the lamb that has been slain. It's a meal. The festival of unleavened bread is a seven-day party that follows and overlaps the Passover. And it said that they kept, they purified themselves and kept the Passover. And the people separated themselves from the compromise of those that are around them. Separate yourselves from those that are around you. But don't go into a little bubble. Don't go into your four walls and, and not get out and serve. How were they able to do this? How were they able to finish the temple? How were they able to, to keep all this? They were involved in society. And my first point underneath this, number two is, um, or the second one, is they petitioned with purity. What do I mean by they petitioned? It's not on the slides. They petitioned with purity. The king back in Babylon let them have the permission and the money to finish the work. They were connected with society. They were not constantly rejecting and protesting or hiding. They were saying, we will work with the tools that our society gives us. We're going to write to the king. And guess what? It says in the passage that the Lord had changed the heart of the king. And guess what? The church of God, will, uh, the hell will not prevail against the church. And you never know when God will change the hearts of the king like rivers of water wherever he wants for the advantage of his bride. So that they can worship, so they can get rich, so they can prosper and have an easy padded life. God will change the hearts of kings so that his people will be able to worship. So they kept this feast, this feast of bitter herbs. What does the bitter herbs mean? It, it reflects to the, the day of Egypt when they had slavery and the bitterness of being enslaved in a place of sin. Do you remember that bitterness? Passover says, don't forget the bitterness of being enslaved to sin. Don't forget. Actually, actually be systematic and put it on your calendar to remind yourself of the bitter herbs of Egypt that you walked in when you were enslaved. And it says also, um, eat unleavened bread. Leaven in the Bible, it talks about hypocrisy. It says that knowledge puffs up. Pride makes us feel something bigger and better than what's actually there. You ever seen like a big fluffy loaf of bread that's been all yeasted up? Or have you ever baked bread and, and didn't meet, uh, knead it like you were supposed to? It just like grew and grew and grew and got like out of control? The problem with leaven is it tries to pretend like it's something that it's not. Kind of like those bags of potato chips where you're like, ah, oh, huge bag of potato chips. And it's three out the bottom. <laughs> God hates hypocrisy. Get the leaven out. Purify yourself. And they would take seven days to sweep out the particles of yeast and of bread and anything that had leaven as a, as a dedication to say, we will Go to every nook and cranny and corner of our heart and get rid of hypocrisy, pride. 
trying to act like we're something that we're not. Unleavened bread is also food for the road. They were in a hurry. They ate the Passover with haste back in Exodus. Why? Because the enemy is coming to get you. And they need to get out of Dodge. And you don't sit around letting the rolls rise when you're getting chased by Pharaoh. Slap together a tortilla and hit the road. It's simple sustenance without hypocrisy. Church, let's be moving forward and get away from bondage. And then they spread the blood of the lamb across the door. And the night came where this, the, the, the death angel came across the land. And wherever the, de- wherever the blood was seen, there was no death. Easiest picture in the Bible to see the cross. Easiest picture in the Bible to see. In Christ, when God looks at you and sees the blood, there's life and not death. They celebrated with, with purity, and then they celebrated the unleavened bread uh, feast, the, the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with joy. Do you know your God is a God of joy? Do you know your God is a God that likes to party? Randy Alcorn wrote a book that says uh, all about happiness. A lot of times conservative Protestants struggle with being happy. I believe I should be and I struggle with being happy. Actually, the last two weeks have been kind of grumpy. How do we have joy, though, in exile? How do we have happiness when things aren't going the way you wish they would go? What do we do? We go to number three. I hope right now that you're feeling low. I hope you're feeling the weight of the command of God's law. Don't worry. Be happy. We hate that. It's not helpful. Well, have joy can be just as hard. I don't feel joyful, Lord. Um, Read scripture and enjoy it. I'm not enjoying it, Lord. Well, you are a, a child of the king. Smile a little more. I don't feel like it, Lord. Isn't that the struggle where I wish I felt the things I already knew? We talked about number one, three things joyful exiles do. My question is, how? I pray the next point is encouraging. Stop looking at your to-do list for a minute. Don't burn it. Stop looking at it for a minute. And quit thinking about, okay, so I'm supposed to be a joyful exile. Check. And realize every single one of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ is loved by the most joyful exile in the history of creation. Jesus Christ is our joyful exile. He was at home in paradise, and he talked to God the Father and said, Lord, you can exile me from this perfect paradise, and I will go down to this corrupt creation, and I will be in exile for your people. I will be in exile for your glory. I will be in exile for your holiness. For the sake of the plans and purposes and the covenant of our God, I will be exiled. 
and I will go to the cross and I will deal with the sin and I will fix the brokenness and I will be stripped naked and, and take on the shame of the cross for what the joy set before him. You don't <clears throat> legally have to be happy. You get Jesus's happiness for you. And you know what makes me happy? That does. Yes, we are supposed to have joy. Yes, we are. It is a command, and the only way that we can have true joy and true happiness is to go to the gospel and say, you never can do what is required of the law and confess that I can't be happy. And the Lord says, I forgive you. And suddenly you go, huh, well, I'm, huh, really? You're telling me I'm pure? I don't feel pure. You're telling me I'm clean? I don't feel clean. You're telling me that when you see me, you see joy? I don't have it, Lord. Do you know, Donnie, I see you through the perfect, joyful exile. 1 Corinthians tells us there is a deeper and greater unleavened feast. There is a deeper and greater Passover meal. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You ever po uh, all puffed up with pride and say, I gotta, I gotta have my way. I deserve better. That's all leaven. And God says, you may be acting leavened today, but you're unleavened in Christ. He says, you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ said, I'm the bread of life. Don't think white loaf. Think tortilla. I am the bread of life. He's the unleavened bread with no malice or hypocrisy. He's a lamb without spot or blame. The only way that we can be joyful exiles is to know this. There was one that became a joyful exile for us because we never really can the way we're supposed to. And when we know that, there is something about the gospel that turns the earn and get paid method inside out. And that is when the gospel changes the heart. It changes your core motive from I have to to I want to. And then you can say, Lord, since I'm unleavened, I can purge out the leaven. It doesn't make sense. Unless you see the cross, unless you see the gospel, unless you understand we are. I am who you say that I am. So, how do we do these things and serve the church as a joyful exile? How do we serve as neighbors, uh, serve our neighbors as a joyful exile? How do we serve enemies as a joyful exile? How do we live in a post-Christian society. Never forget who you are. Keep your to-do list. Organize your life. 
look at the law and say, Lord, I want to be joyful. I've overused this illustration, but I'm going to use it again and then close. At the start of Saving Private Ryan, the movie, there is this picture of an old man walking through a cemetery. And he goes to the gravestones. His wife, his elderly wife, and his daughter and his grandchildren are running around the gravestones, and, and they're over in France. And he's looking for a certain man and a certain name on a gravestone, and he finally finds it. And he looks at it, and he starts to weep. And he kneels down. His wife comes over and comforts him. And then you go into the story, and you find out that the old man was the young Private Ryan, that a group of soldiers had risked their life, and some even gave their life so that he could live. Don't you love it when pop culture overlaps with truth once in a while? And you step back from that story, and you think, the man in the grave is the reason the grandchildren can run around them. We're getting ready to take communion. It's a modified version of Passover. Uh, it reminds us of one that died so that we can live. It reminds us of one who lived a perfect life so that God sees us as a joyful exile. And please don't hear the gospel without thinking that God calls us to walk in purity because there's nothing like love that makes you want to be pure? You ever had your spouse uh, treat you in a way you don't deserve? Maybe you know you irritated her, you irritated him, you didn't do something that you should have done, and she comes to you and says, I love you. You know what she's thinking. Why didn't you do the to-do list? Nothing motivates us to want to do the to-do list like having someone that's not only willing to love us and motivate our hearts uh, by the gospel, but someone that took that love all the way to death and died for us. The Passover reminds us of the death of Christ and the seven days of partying moving forward of the Feast of Unleavened Bread says now live without hypocrisy. Now live without leaven. The cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ should never uh, not change our life. It should motivate us in a way that nothing else can. So I pray this has been a, uh, a blessing to you. And uh, we'll go ahead and shift gears over to the time of communion. And uh, we will have the servers come forward and, um, and have the bread and have the juice. And if anyone needs prayer, uh, feel free to, to ask the servers to pray for you. If you feel like uh, you'd rather just um, take things and pray on your own, you can go to the back and do that. Um, this is a time of um, declaring your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't declared your faith in Jesus Christ yet, um, then be best to wait on this. And if you feel like, you know what, today's the day. I'm, I'm tired of being not in that party. Um, I'm tired of uh, 
hearing about this life of Christianity uh, and really not being part of it. I want to be a joyful exile. I want to be part of this amazing legacy, this tradition, this thing that's been going on, this church um, idea that's been going on for centuries. Do you know you can step into that legacy and be part of what's going on in God's word? Um, trust him. Put your faith in him. Respond by faith. So, um, I want to pray for the teenagers. <coughs> Dear Father, I thank you so much for the young people in our church. Father, I thank you so much for their joy and energy. I thank you for their uh, vision of moving forward in their life. What a blessing it is to, uh, I guess I would even say an honor it is to be in their lives. Teenagers deal with a lot of challenges. I think of some of us when we were teenagers, and uh, I know here in the well that sometimes our teen life was some of the worst experiences we had of times of brokenness and disappointment and pain. But it's also a time of excitement and, and, and uh, new experiences and uh, growth, able to get driver's license and new freedom and think about um, what is life going to be like for me as a teenager? What's going to happen? Am I going to get married? Am I going to break up? Am I going to pass the test? Am I going to graduate? Does nobody like me? It's this mixed and blend of emotions, Lord, that, that go through those, those years. Lord, I, I lift up our young people this morning. And I pray for them that they will see that in the mix of all that uh, media throws at them, all that um, society expects of them, and even oftentimes what the church uh, expects of them, that through it all, that they could hear joy, the, the, the joyful message of you, our great exile, calling and saying, there is a life worth living. I've paid the price. Come follow me. I'll show you how to navigate uh, the decades ahead. I'll, I'll be there with you with my power. I'll be near you with my presence. And Lord, I expand a prayer to, to those that really care for our young people, those of us that have young people as our children. Lord, may we model a message of joy and we can be exiled we can be on the fringes of society but we won't grow bitter or we won't grow complacent but they will engage with joy 
I pray right now for myself that the things that, uh, that I do know will translate into things that I do. And so, Lord, as we, as we partake of, of the juice and the bread, just re- be reminded that um, you're the one that died. You're the one that paid. And as we love to say here at the well, there is a, there's an empty tomb and there's a hope of heaven and there's no better life knowing those things. So we love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.